0: As you're uh, standing, would you please take your Bible and turn to Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 3, Nehemiah the third chapter. If you're new to heritage, uh, uh, let me just kind of give you some context. We have been, been uh, moving through a study of Ezra, took a break in the middle of Ezra so we could stay with the chronology and uh, studied the book of Esther. And finished Ezra, now we're in uh, Nehemiah, uh, going chapter by chapter. And when it, uh, when it fits, uh, verse by verse. And so we're finding ourselves today in chapter 3. And uh, we're going to read a couple of verses. Uh, one I'll direct you to, do you have chapter 3, verse 1? Good. Slide your finger back to chapter 2, verse 17. We will read uh, verses 17 and 18 to set the context. Then I will show you on the screen another verse that goes with uh, what we're going to be considering uh, today out of uh, Nehemiah chapter 3. Nehemiah 2, verse 17. Then I said to them, You see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Reading out of Isaiah chapter 58, verse 12, you can just look at the screen. Those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets. Father, I thank you that we can now study the Word of God together. I thank you that whether we are looking at a paper Bible open on our laps, or we have the digital version in our hands, that we would give our full attention to your Word that you have spoken in this incredible book and in this incredible chapter. I pray that you would give clarity to what uh, I say, uh, that you would help me to go through the thoughts from this passage of Scripture and apply them not only to us individually as followers of Christ, but to us as a church. And Father, I pray that You would bless us to the end, that we would truly receive Your Word and respond to Your Word and take that next step in our transformation into the likeness of Christ. Father, again, I want to mention what i Spoke about earlier, we pray for Rich and for Kathy. We pray that you would bless them continually as they're working with young couples, eager to hear your word about how to apply your word to their marriages and families. We pray for Mike and Diana making this really arduous trip. Pray for their safety, but Lord, uh, as I was reminded, that's not their first concern. Their first concern is that they would be effective in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, so I pray to that end. Pray that you would help us now and give us wisdom and eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We uh, – I'm talking about we, are leaders, and our church will say this over and over again, that the Bible that you have in front of you, again, whether it's a paper Bible or if it's a digital Bible, the Bible that you have in front of you is not a disjointed mix of myth and legend with a few moral principles sprinkled in to help us maximize our potential. This book that we have before us is God's perfect, inerrant, infallible, clear revelation of Jesus Christ and the gospel of salvation. And folks, again, I will never tire of saying this, particularly in the the culture in which we live, the world in which we live, it is absolutely necessary that we hold to the same view of Scripture that Jesus did. He held to Scripture, all of it, that it is totally reliable, it is totally trustworthy, it is totally true. The Apostle Paul, you you know verses like this, reminded us that all Scripture, not some Scripture, all Scripture is inspired by God. Jesus reminded us. We've looked at these verses in the last couple of weeks. On the Emmaus Road, speaking to the two disciples, and it says that He expounded. That's what we are trying to do. He explained in all the Scripture the things about Himself. Those Sentiments are true then, and they're true now. Every word, every chapter, you may be wondering, why am I belaboring this? Because when we come to Nehemiah chapter 3, and we consider it, I know most of you have not read it. I I encourage you to read it. It, it, When we end the service, you go home, you take your notes, you reread it, and uh, follow along with it. But you come to a a, a chapter like this, which is very similar to the genealogies in the Old Testament and even the genealogies in, in the Gospels, and we come to a, a, a chapter like this with all of these names that we can't pronounce, I can't pronounce, and our eyes, our spiritual eyes glaze over. It was interesting as I started this study, I thought because of the structure that we were going to be doing that I would actually do chapter 3 and chapter 4 together because we would whiz through chapter 3 and then we would get to chapter 4 where there is a little bit meatier stuff about spiritual warfare. Most of the commentaries that I read glossed over chapter 3. Uh, I, I, I was shocked. I'm using a little commentary. Uh, referring to it, written by Chuck Swindoll. You know Chuck Swindoll, excellent preacher, excellent commentator. He has a little commentary uh, called Hand Me Another Brick, and when he comes to chapter 3, he skips it. Now, I don't know why. He's much more able as a commentator than I am, but I started looking and reading and, and reading what other people had to say, and while it might seem like a passage that we would want to skip, we're not going to skip it. And one of the reasons is because, what did I just say to you, all Scripture is God-breathed. Even the passages that look boring. And I found as I started studying through it, whoops, I am not going to get through chapters three and four. And I got to midweek and I thought to myself, I'm not even going to get all the way through chapter 3. We will take several weeks to unpack the truths because the truths are so incredibly rich. We're going to talk about this week, you see the outline in front of you which is basically what we read just a few moments ago, when the people of God, and that's what this is about. This is not about work in general. This is about the work of building your life in Jesus Christ, and it's also about you being a part of building the church, the place where the people of God are bound together, and they come to worship the great and glorious God. So we're going to get to the gates. I mean, the gates are all through this, but not until next week or the week after. We're going to get to the gates. We're going to talk about all 10 of them. And, and I, I hope it impacts you like it impacted me. I started going through the gates and I started wondering, why is the first gate called the Sheep Gate? Why is it that the gates, which are about access into the city of Jerusalem and ultimately into where the temple is that Zerubbabel built, why are the gates so important? Why is the first gate, and by the way, it's also the last gate mentioned, the ten gates, why is it called the sheep gate? I'm not going to answer that until I get to it, but I, I, I encourage you. To go to the Word of God and to discover the places that Jesus spoke of Himself being the one through whom we come, the Lamb of God, slain from the foundation of the world. And I'll, I'll just leave it to you to do your own scripture search this week, okay? Before we come back. But let's get to it. You see that I've got five points. I said I wasn't going to get to the last point. And uh, you might have scrunched up your nose and said, what in the world does that last point mean that the, the, the gospel is in the gates? Again, we're going to get to that um, in, in just a little while. But what I want to do right now is to go through the one, two, three, four, the first four points, and we're going to talk about those things. All right? We're going to talk about first your life as a believer, as I said in a few minutes ago. You as an individual. Now, here's what the apostle says. And here's what we're after as a church. How many of you, by the way, church members know our motto, what it is that kind of binds us together? We exist, Heritage Baptist Church exists to develop, help me out here, people who delight in God and declare His glory from our neighborhoods to the nations. So the first place we start is always with you as an individual. And that's why Paul says we proclaim Him, Jesus, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present every person, everyone mature in Christ. And Paul adds this, and it goes with what we're talking about here, work, for this I work. In fact, he uses a word that's more than just work. It's, It's the sweat of the brow kind of work. He says, I toil struggling with all of his energy, that he powerfully works in me. So we're going to be applying it individually, obviously, as we work through it. Then we're going to be applying it. Now, again, not work in general. We could do that. And there are obvious implications for that. We're going to talk about your work in the church. All right? Serving in the church, building the church. Ephesians chapter 4, we read these words, and he gave, now watch this, he's giving gifted men and he gives others to the church, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to do what? To equip the saints, the wall builders, for the work of the ministry. Who's supposed to do the ministry? Well, that's you, preacher. No, I'm included, but it's all of us for the what? For building up of the body of Christ. You got it? Okay, let's look at the first point then. Worshippers are workers and your work is holy. Look at verse 1. I'll try to pronounce these names. Then Eliashab, I, this, this is so incredibly rich. Look at, look at this. Who starts the work? Eliashib. The high priest rose up with his brothers, the other priest, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They set it apart and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanano. So again, did you notice? Who led out in the work? Who? It was the high priest. Let me me just lay that over on what the New Testament says about all of us who are in Christ. We are priests under God. So here's who started the work, worshipers. He He was the lead worshiper in the temple. And so I believe that he would have definitely agreed with the Apostle Paul on the true meaning of worship. We have tried to say this along the way in different ways. Worship does not, when I say worship, what do you automatically think of? Come on, come on. Well, what most people think of is what just went on with Jonathan and the choir and the orchestra leading us. That's worship. And then comes the preaching. Let's do the worship and then let's try to get through the preaching. Paul defines everything we do, hopefully, is worship. Everything you do in life, when you got up this morning, when you go home today, when you're driving down the road, when you're relating to your family, everything you do in life, according to Paul, and I think the high priest would have agreed with this, everything you do is worship. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies, everything, mind, will, emotions, physical body, as a living sacrifice Holy, it says that they consecrated the gate, holy and acceptable to God. Watch this, which is your spiritual worship. If you want to know what worship is, I think the high priest would have agreed with the apostle Paul. All of life is worship. I I think he would have agreed with, and we said this a few minutes ago, Let's go back to it. He would have agreed with other New Testament leaders who said, this is is our work. This is our worship. The apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, and that this work is holy. It's consecrated to the Lord. you got to get a picture of this. Worshiping in the temple. When we come back and we look at the gates, I'm going to give you a diagram. It'd be worth your while to look for a diagram of Jerusalem at the time of Nehemiah this week for your own personal study. But one of the things that you're going to see, and this is why this chapter is so vital that we don't skip over it. Worshiping in the temple went hand in hand with working in the trenches. This is the high priest with the rest of his brothers. One of the applications I saw, I I thought, no, it's bigger than that. Well, one of the applications is it means that preachers are not above manual labor. Some may think we are, but we're, we're not. We need to roll up our sleeves to get in the trenches with the rest. Now, let me just say this, and most of you understand what I'm saying here, but this could be a new revelation to some of you, or illumination. There is an ungodly and an unbiblical divide between sacred and secular, between the temple and the walls. And some people see it like that where that the temple, that is where you went, and you did the sacrifices, that's where you worshipped, is seen as sacred, and the walls are seen as secular. But God, listen to this, God led Nehemiah to build the walls and the gates just as much as he led Zerubbabel to build the temple. In fact... The building of the walls and the gates were as essential in God's plan to the building of the temple. If the walls were unfinished, the temple was unfinished. Every piece was important. No walls. Now, I thought about going further than this. This could be construed as a political statement. I'm confiding. I, I just your minds are going to race to this. I know, but but it is a thought. No walls for Jerusalem meant no city, and especially back then, when marauders or wild animals and all of the rest of that could wander in, the walls were essential. They were as essential as the temple that's why chapter 3 is in the Bible, chapter 3 of Nehemiah. Let me say this by way of application. Okay. We went back, and uh, I, I'm thinking about uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Please listen to this statement. I, I want to see if you agree with it. Okay. Workers are not always worshipers. Okay, you tracking? A person, let's, let's say you work in the church, and I don't know what, uh, what meaning you attach to that. You serve, you, you teach a class, or you, uh, you, uh, you're on the greeter team. That's our howdy team. Catchy, isn't it? I always love to see people behind the desk. I say, oh, you've got howdy duty. Yes, I do. They love it. A worker may not be a worshiper though. There are plenty of people in my experience of growing up in a church who worked like a dog but they were really not worshipers. You could tell it because their lives were not submitted like Paul said in Romans 1 to worship God in every fiber of your being every day of the week including Sunday. But let me, let me go to the other side of that. Workers may not be worshipers but please hear this. Write it down if you're writing If not, remember it. Worshippers are always workers. Or else Romans 12.1 is not true. Workers may not be worshipers, but worshipers are always workers. And you say, "Uh uh-oh, here comes the guilt. No, here comes the Truth. If the shoe fits, yeah, somebody remembered that from Ephesians. you got to take off before you can put on. Coming to Christ means something. you got to stop doing idolatry before you can enter into that relationship with Christ. So, and by the way, you know what I was thinking of as I was writing out this message? I was thinking of our students and the, the sponsors who went to Barnabas last week. At night, what did you do? What what did you guys do at night besides sleep, besides eating? Well, you what? What did you do? Did you sing? You worshipped. Oh, okay. What did you do do during the day? You worked. Okay, no question. Do you realize that during the day, when you were working, you were worshiping? It's all worship. That's the whole key to understanding that. So, let me let you in on a secret. And if Sean McGill is in here, she's probably over there working with our children. I was thinking of her and I was thinking of, of, of other churches where I've heard this. If our church has, listen to me, if our church has a worker problem, we really don't have a worker problem. We've got a worship problem. If a worshiper is a worker, then we, we, if we've got a worker problem, we, we really don't. We have a worshiper problem. And, you know, that could be applied to, to anything. And, and, by the way, there, there's no guilt with that for a believer. That's just a statement of fact. And we're going to see that in, in just a few minutes with some guys who didn't really want to work for whatever reason. A worshiping church has workers. A worshiping church has people who give. It's not really about the giving. It's really about the worshiping and all the rest. I could go down. A worshiping church has people who are striving toward holiness. So if holiness is a problem, let's discover what God says about our worship. So, And and those who have been here for any length of time, you know this. It's not just music, it's muscle. It's not just singing notes, it's also slinging bricks. Point two. The work of the body of Christ is a beautiful thing, except when people don't work. Verse five. Zip down there. Next to them were the Techoites, and they repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now, that could be their superiors, but their nobles. So, I'm just, whatever you want to say, it's also they would not stoop to serve their Lord because they wouldn't stoop to do the work. When you read through this, you're going to see that the work of rebuilding the walls and the gates was a team effort. And the picture is absolutely, I'll, I'll even say it like this stunningly beautiful. Everybody in the body is working together in his or her spot. One thing that you'll notice, and you don't have to go far to notice this because it says it 29 times next to him, after him after them, beside them. And the picture here is that you almost couldn't tell where one group stopped and the other group began. It was a total team effort, no gaps. They were side by side, 40 crews in 45 sections, linked arms, yoked together in ministry. I said no gaps? Let me throw in one more thing. No superstar. They were from different clans. Did you get that? They were from different clans. They were from different professions. There were Jews and non-Jews, nobles and servants, rich and poor, young and old, men and women. I thought to myself as I read this, oh... If some of the companies and the government agencies that are teaching so-called diversity training would read Nehemiah 3, that, that's diversity in ministry in action. And somehow, uh, you, you, con- contextually, get, get a picture for this. They were shaken out of their self-centeredness. If you don't realize this, this is 140 years later after the building of the temple, after they came. And they come together. How long? Does anybody know how long it took them to build the walls, the gates? 52 days for a... For 140 years, they were stuck on high center. They couldn't get off because they were looking at themselves. They they, they were self-centered. And all of a sudden, a guy comes and says, you know, we need to rebuild the walls. We need to get the temple and the walls and the gates all together here. And they start and they work. Why? Because it says later in chapter 4, look at this, so we built the wall. That's an understatement. 52 days. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. Why? Look at this. For the people had a mind to work. Or at least some of them did. Look down at chapter 5. Again, let's read the last part of that. But the Tekoites, they, they got involved. Standing shoulder to shoulder. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord." Reality check. That's what this is. Now, by the way, as I read this, and I read it and reread it, please hear this. This is not a critical statement by Nehemiah. This is just a statement of reality. He says they wouldn't stoop to do the work. They wouldn't lift a finger. It's not a critical statement meant to shame them. One author said that, and I do not see that. It's just fact that is embedded in the reality of the people of God from the very beginning to right now. I want you to write down three words under this point. I don't have them on the screen. If you need help spelling them, kids, look at your children or vice versa. Some of you adults look at the children. Write down three words, constructionist, constructionist, okay? Write down that word. Second word I want you to write down after constructionist, destructionist, destructionist. Third word obstructionist so you got the three words constructionist pretty self explaining what is a constructionist some in the church will work not all some what's a destructionist Oh, by, by the way, this is not just the church. I'm not just talking about here this body of Christ. I am talking about that, but remember, it's an individual thing. So in your family, let me, let me hone it down even further. And I'm sorry if this feels like I'm meddling, but this is just the Word of God wants us to be holy in every sphere of life, beginning with us as individuals. What's the next closest thing that we need to come to? It, it's, it's the the, the marriage and then the family, and then you just go out in those concentric circles. You're you're going to be one of these three kinds of people in your marriage, in your family, in your church, in your world. You're going to be a constructionist. You will have a mind to work. By the way, you go around the wall, they were all doing different things. It, It doesn't have to look the same, and it's not going to look the same. But they all had a mind to work. So those are constructionists. What's a destructionist? That no matter what you do in your marriage or in the church or whatever, there are always those who will oppose and tear down. Always. There will always be those. But then the third, what's that? An obstructionist. They just get in the way. They're not going to pull their own weight, they're not going to lift a finger to help. Why? Why wouldn't these people work? Do, do, do you have any idea? Well, it says they were nobles. So you, you can guess some things that might be going on. Maybe it was divided loyalties. They had a loyalty to one master over the other. That keeps us from working, sometimes, doesn't it? Maybe it was pride, enablement. Maybe they were lazy. Maybe they were like people that I've heard throughout the the time I've ministered in the church of Jesus Christ. They reached a certain age and they had served all of their lives and they said, hey, that's it. I've served my time. Let the younger folks do it. And I'm just going to take it easy. Now, again, I'm smiling. I, I, I don't want to unnecessarily offend notice the operative word unnecessarily no no human pressure please please we don't want to guilt anybody to coming to a prayer meeting or giving money or or doing work in the church no human pressure but divine tension yes I was a youth pastor in two churches where I really didn't have to worry about, you know, the overall um, running of the church, if you will, and then I became a pastor. And the, past, the, the, the church that I pastored to start with was less in number than the youth ministry that I'd just come from. But we went through all of those things, and I had this, this deacon, he was just so wise, and he, we'd talk, and... And and he had these things, and I I just learned a lot from that guy. He said, one of the things he said, hey, Marty, you know this church is full of willing Baptists. I said, really? He said, yep, they're willing to let someone else do the work. (laughs) Then he said, there's the 80-20 principle. 20% of the people will do 80% of the work. Enjoy the benefits. Just won't do their part. Now, again, here's what fascinates me. You guys aren't feeling any unnecessary guilt, are you? I, I, really, I don't want you to. What's fascinating to me is that there's nothing in the writing of this that indicates that Nehemiah records it to shame them. But something else that is very, very clear, the people that worked got their names recorded for eternity. And the people who didn't, we have no idea who they are. Oh, by the way, because they didn't do the work, did the work not get done? Here, here's an old principle. If you don't work, God's going to do his work, but you're going to miss the joy. You really are. And this, two, two passages where we see that the work, you there will always be God's supply for what God wants to do in his church. Next to them, the, the Tekoites the, the repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve them. But lo and behold, fast forward to verse 27, after him, the Tekoites uh, repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower. There was another clan that got in on this. Next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hazak, repaired. After him, you fast forward to verse 21, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, the son of Hazak, repaired another section. I don't know why they didn't do it. I asked that a minute ago. We don't know why. Except for one thing. We do know why. Back to the first point. Why didn't they work? Okay. Because they weren't worshipers. It's just as simple as that. God will always complete his work. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. And he will build his church. Others picked up the slack, which they will always do, get this, without complaint. I don't see any complaining here. And they did the work, and the ones who didn't do the work missed the joy. Do you remember when Jesus was talking about workers? And one guy was given five talents, another two talents, another one talent. But those guys that went out and worked, he said the exact same thing to So it's not the amount of talent that you have. It's your faithfulness. And he said, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with this little amount. I will put you in charge. And, oh, by the way, enter into the joy of God. Of your master. Here's another story for you, Deuteronomy 28, verse 4. Um, this is a statement, and then I'll get to the, the passage. You know, for, for me, I'll just put in an advertisement for our Bible reading program, whether you choose the two-year or the one-year, I love the one-year, I've been on that for several years, and it's amazing how when I'm in, I've been reading through Numbers and Deuteronomy and how much it overlays on what I'm preaching. It's just amazing. Deuteronomy 28 says, all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. And you're thinking in the big stuff, avoiding in, you know, sexual morality and all the rest of that idolatry. But what about work? Blessed shall you be when you come in, blessed shall you be when you go out. And then there's this fascinating story at the end of Numbers. Do you remember that story? Anybody been reading the story of Reuben and Gad? Did did that grab you? It goes exactly with what Nehemiah is talking about here in chapter 3. Let me tell you the story. Reuben and Gad—they were the, he, here. Were the children of Israel, after forty years, getting ready to cross the Jordan and take the land. And Reuben and Gad look at the land on the on the other side of the Jordan. They got a lot of cattle, sheep, and goat, and and so they're they're saying, "Hey, we would like to settle here, and not go over the Jordan." And Moses challenges them. Joshua challenges them. If, if, you, if you don't, you, you can't do this. If you don't go over, by the way, have you ever heard the phrase, be sure your sins will find you out? Most of you think that that has to do with, like, if you're a, if you're a kid and you go to a party that you're not supposed to go to, and uh, later on your parents find out, and that's never going to happen to our students, Okay or you do something, you cheat on your tax, or whatever, and you get caught, and some smart aleck Christian will say, well, be sure your sins will find you out. The context has nothing to do with those reasons. Moses said, you got to go over and help, and they said, that's, that's our plan. We are going to settle our, our wives and children and get our cattle here, we're going to go over." until every other tribe has their land. And when that is accomplished, then we're going to go back and settle down. And that's when Numbers 32:23 was written. If you do that, that's good. But if you do not help your brothers to go in and take the land, behold, you have sinned, Against the Lord. And be sure your sins will find you out. Point three. Let me stop here. I you know, I'm not sure how this sermon is landing. I I I just and I've been praying myself. You know, what what does that mean for a Mike and Diana, 74 years old? And they're they're going, not everybody can. I'm not saying you should. But at least, here's that little phrase, they had the mind to work. So whatever this means for you, that's how the Holy Spirit needs to take this word and apply it to your life. But let's finish up. Point three, your work for the Lord must start with your own family. Do I even have to say that? Unfortunately, yes. Verse 23, chapter three, verse 23. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiiah, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. They were working on the wall, on the gates at the place. Was, that was closest to where they needed to give their first and best attention. And we, we don't need to apologize. For example, if a preacher or guest missionary or whatever, and all of a sudden the guilt begins to pile on and you realize something very, very important, your ministry will never ever be effective if you're not ministering to your own household first and giving them the priority. Now, on the other side of that, do not use your family as an excuse not to be involved. But but there is a reason why they built close to their house. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his own household, and that's not just the, 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 the material means. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. It, it, people, it's, it's not an either or, it's a both and. With the family always becoming the priority of all of your, all of your ministry. And by the way, here's, here's what I would say to you. Dads, I hope you're, you're feeling the weight of this, granddads. Don't try to go back and undo. Just start where you are. If you need to repent, do that. And then move forward with all of that in mind. Last thing. And we'll just mention the gospel in the gates. God honors those who work and serve no matter the size of their contribution. And I, I could just read through all of it. All of those names are recognized. God recognized the workers by family name for their contribution. And again, I'll just share with you that the slackers, they're just there. We don't know who they are. God didn't record their names. You know what this really reminds me of? is the, not only, as I mentioned a minute ago, well done, good and faithful servant, but it also reminds me of Hebrews chapter 11. So I guess Hebrews 11 we could call the hall of fame of faith, but Nehemiah chapter 3 we could call the hall of fame of work. God sees what you do, even the smallest thing. No matter your age, station in life, resources, he sees everything that you do to help build the body of Christ. Let me just mention this. The gospel is in the gates. Again, I encourage you to go around, uh, get a map, go around, start with the the sheep gate. Why is it called the sheep gate? Go Go to the fish gate, which is next. Hmm, fish? What comes after our initial salvation? Well, if you said fishing, I'd kind of go along with you. But Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of me. And you just go on around. It's, it's a beautiful picture. And that's why in the Psalms, the psalmist said, the Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Why? Because the gates are a rich, rich picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the process of our sanctification. And by the way, when you read it, you're going to notice again, ten gates. There are some other things along the way. Ten gates. The sheep gate is the only gate that is mentioned first and last after the tenth. Why? Because everything, everything we do begins and ends with the gospel. I said it a minute ago, Christ crucified Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in case you didn't know it, in John 10, 9, Jesus said, I'm the gate. He is the gate. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and have pasture. The message of Nehemiah 3, at least in part, we'll come back to it because we're not finished is that we build our lives individually on the things that we have talked about today. Everybody needs to be at work with the materials that he's given us, the Word of God, the Spirit of God, the people of God. Let let me just close with this last thing, and it's a quote. Over here, Edward Welch, who's written an incredible book, in fact, the book that he's written that this is taken from is about addiction. The title of the book is called A Banquet in the Grave. Wow. And he wrote this about the importance of how we need each other. We, we never know the person sitting next to us, what they have been through this week, this month. We never know. But here's, here's what he said. Follow along with me. In our battles with sin... We need a team of people. Amen. We need teachers to help us understand Scripture, prophets to help us apply it, interceders to pray for us, preachers to focus our eyes on Christ, encouragers to remind us of God's grace when we feel like failures, wise men and women to discern when we are making foolish decisions, and people of faith to tell us that everything God has said is true in Christ. In other words, God's gifts to us are people, not just one person, but the church. This is how Christ meets us. The reason we need so many people is that we need Christ himself, since his glory and gifts are so immense, we need many people, not just an individual. Father, I'm grateful for your word I'm grateful that in your Word, almost on every page and every story, the gospel is portrayed. We we understand, we realize that we are sinners, undone, completely helpless, unable, in and of ourselves, to save ourselves, or even to come savingly to Jesus Christ. And then we discover, lo and behold, that you sent your Son Jesus. To be that perfect sheep, that lamb who died for the sins of the world. And to tell us that there is no other way to enter into your presence, Father, where there is worship and there is joy other than through the gate who is Jesus. And so my my first part of this prayer is that if there is anyone here today who does not know Jesus, young or old, that that person man or woman, student or professional, that that person would believe savingly in Jesus Christ and then th- that we <coughs> who know you and who love you would bow the knee and would follow you with our whole lives. We thank you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.